turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Eight minutes after four o'clock is our time. Today we're going to talk with Romina Baccia. She is a deputy director at the Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies at a Grover M. Herman Research Fellow. We're going to talk with her about uh, the insolvency of Social Security and Medicare, and you might be surprised to learn just how soon they will have run out of money uh, or be able to keep the commitments that were made some time back. Now, this isn't news to members of Congress who promised baby boomers years ago, oh, don't worry, we're going to fix it, or that we're going to keep piling benefits uh, into the program that we can't actually pay for. But hopefully it won't crash while I'm still in office. We're also going to uh, share a conversation I had with Tony Evans, his latest book, Your Comeback. Your past doesn't have to determine your future, and that's pretty good news uh, for just about all of us. Well, today marks a a special occasion on several counts. Today happens to be my 62nd birthday. And while I know it's not fashionable for women of a certain age to admit openly just how old they are, I have to tell you, my motivation, gratitude. I've mentioned every birthday that I've mentioned on the air that my oldest brother, my older brother, I should say, lived um, to see a few days into his 16th year. And so every year that I celebrate a birthday, I am grateful and uh, recognize that it is a tremendous gift. So 62 years, I'm uh, I'm enjoying the day. Also, today happens to be the 70th anniversary of Bob and Grace Stutzman. Now, they happen to be my sister's in-laws. She married Dwayne Stutzman some 30, almost 40 years ago, and they became her in-laws. And Bob and Grace Stutzman have been tremendous parents and grandparents and now great-grandparents, and today they are celebrating their 70th wedding anniversary. I aspire to such a thing, but if I were to reach that um, that goal along with Dan Rice, we would be in our mid-100s, so it's probably not going to happen. But Bob and Grace have set a wonderful example not just for their immediate family, but for those of us who are sort of the satellite family family members as well. And I consider them to be a part of um, our extended uh, family. So I wanted to congratulate Bob and Grace Stutzman on their 70th anniversary. And thanks for Dwayne. He's made a tremendous uh, husband to my sister, Donna Stutzman. If that were not the case, I probably would have been in uh, maximum security prison because, well, I don't need to explain. Today also happens to be D-Day. Today marks the anniversary of D-Day, codenamed Operation Overlord, the Allied invasion of France that commenced on the 6th of June in 1944. It was the beginning of the end of World War II in Europe. It probably felt like the beginning of the end for those who were a part of that, um, that amazing effort. It was one of the epic battles in defense of American liberty and, by extension, that of all of the world. Uh, Supply, Supreme Allied Commander General Dwight Eisenhower issued this charge. You are about to embark upon a great crusade. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. You will bring about the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely and let us all beseech the blessings of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking." Well, at that time, it wasn't clear what the outcome would be. Hopes were high, but there were lots of uh, lots of things that could have gone wrong, and many that did. Franklin Roosevelt led the nation in a prayer for the thousands of men crossing the English Channel, saying, Almighty God, our sons, pride of our nation, this day have set upon a mighty endeavor, a struggle to preserve our republic. Oh, he actually called it a republic. Our religion and our civilization and to set free a suffering humanity. Uh, They fight not for the lust of conquest. They fight to end conquest. They fight to liberate. They fight to let justice arise in tolerance and goodwill among all thy people. They yearn but for the end of battle, for their return to the haven of home. Some will never return. Embrace these, Father, and receive them. They 
uh, thy heroic servants into thy kingdom. And for us at home, fathers, mothers, children, wives, sisters, and brothers of brave men overseas, help us, Almighty God, to rededicate ourselves in renewed faith in thee in this hour of great sacrifice. And, O Lord, give us faith. Give us faith in thee, faith in our sons, faith in each other, faith in our united crusade. Thy will be done, Almighty God. Amen. Again, that's a prayer that was uttered at the time by Franklin Roosevelt. Well, before daybreak, hundreds of planes dropped paratroopers behind German lines to capture bridges and railroad tracks. At dawn, battleship guns began softening the beaches, hitting German coastline fortifications. Thousands of amphibious craft landed on five beaches, and 156,000 American, British, Canadian, and French troops fought their way ashore on the 50-mile stretch of heavily fortified beaches, the largest invasion force in history, involving more than 5,000 ships, 13,000 aircraft. Our U.S. forces who landed at Omaha Beach struggled with high seas, with fog and mines, enemy fire that poured down on, uh, on them from very high bluffs. Many soldiers were shot as they departed their landing craft, dying in the bloody surf. Those who reached the sand met a wall of machine gun fire. One commander told his men that only two types of people would stay on the beach— those dead and those going to die, so they'd better push forward. In some units on Omaha, 90% of the troops were killed or wounded, but the assault force managed to cross the beach and drive the Germans inland. At Utah Beach, the other U.S. landing zone, the first wave of troops found themselves 2,000 yards south of where they were supposed to be. It was a lucky miss since the area was not as heavily defended as the original target. Quick-thinking commanders ordered troops to follow the first wave ashore to secure a beachhead. Before sunset that day, there were confirmed 4,414 Allied forces who perished. American casualties in World War II were unprecedented. There were 405,399 deaths and 670,846 wounded. We salute all the World War II American and Allied patriots and their families for their untold service and sacrifice. On the 2nd of September 1945, six years and one day after hostilities commenced, Germany's surrender was secured. Total World War II battle deaths worldwide are estimated at more than 15 million, with more than 25 million wounded, and civilian deaths estimated at more than 45 million. We owe these greatest generation patriots and generations before and since an enormous debt of gratitude. We owe them our steadfast um, uh, gratitude uh, to uh, American liberty over enemies foreign and domestic in our own day so that gift may be extended to the next generation. Ronald Reagan, in commending the 40th anniversary of that day, standing on hallowed grounds in Normandy, commending that, uh, uh, that occasion, gave remarks at a ceremony. When we come back from the break, we'll share some of those words with you as we remember D-Day, 1944. Fifteen minutes after four o'clock is our time. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Nineteen minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to the Wednesday edition of The Georgine Rice Show. President... Um, Ronald Reagan, on the 40th anniversary of D-Day, had the opportunity at a ceremony commemorating the 40th anniversary of the Normandy invasion to stand on that site and offered uh, these words. I won't share them all, but just a few. We're here to mark that day in history when the Allied peoples joined in battle to reclaim this continent to liberty. For four long years, much of Europe had been under a terrible shadow. Three uh, free nations had fallen. Jews cried out in the camps. Millions cried out for liberation. Europe was enslaved and the world prayed for its rescue. Here in Normandy, the rescue began. Here the Allies stood and fought against tyranny in a giant undertaking unparalleled in human history. We stand on a lonely, windswept point on the northern shore of France. The air is soft, but 40 years ago at this moment, the air was dense with smoke and the cries of men and the air was filled with the cracks of rifle fire and the roar of cannon. At dawn on the morning of the 6th of June, 1944, and he talks about 225 rangers jumping off the British landing craft, ran to the bottom of the uh, cliffs uh, they were standing at and describes what happened. And then a bit further down, he says, 40 summers have passed since the battle that you fought here. You were young the day you took these cliffs. Some of you were hardly uh, uh, more than boys then with the deepest joys of life before you. Yet you risked everything here. Why? Why did you do it? What impelled you to put aside the instinct for self-preservation and risk your lives to take these cliffs? 
what inspired all of uh, of the men of the armies that met here. We look at you and somehow we know the answer. It was faith and belief. It was loyalty and love. The men of Normandy had the faith that what they were doing was right. Faith that they fought for all humanity, faith that a just God would grant them mercy on this beachhead and on the next. It was the deep knowledge and pray, uh, pray to God that we have not lost it, that there is a profound moral difference between the use of force for liberation and the use of force for conquest. You were here to liberate, not to conquer. And so you and those others uh, did no doubt uh, did not doubt, rather, your cause, and you were right not to doubt. And he goes on from there. Again, today marks the uh, 70th anniversary, or rather, marks the anniversary of D-Day. Another anniversary is the 70th. Well, the city of Salem, which just went through a water advisory that ended on Saturday, again put restrictions in place this morning for drinking water. Well, these new restrictions, they apply to children under age uh, 6, people with weak immune systems, people receiving dialysis or similar treatments, the elderly, pregnant, nursing mothers, and pets. Well, Salem's water originates in Detroit Lake, which is going through an algae bloom that creates the natural poison uh, cyanotoxin. City uh, spokesman Kenny Larson said the city officials received results on Wednesday morning from samples taken on the 2nd, 3rd and 4th of this month. In other words, earlier this week, there need to be two clear days worth of results for the advisory to be lifted. Larson said the results from Monday's sample could come as early as Thursday and results from Tuesday's sample could come on Friday. Well, the first advisory led to a run on the bottled water in stores, which quickly ran out before more shipped uh, to the area. Kaiser businesses and the city offered Salem residents free water. Uh, There were stations eventually set up in Salem and the attorney general issued a warning about price gouging. Well, the advisory also affected businesses. Starbucks stores, uh, for example, stopped serving handcrafted beverages and sent customers to outlets in Kaiser and Woodburn. And a Facebook post, a post rather, about the new alert includes uh, the following. The city will continue to post sample results and updated information related to Salem's water advisory on the City of Salem website and Facebook page. Neighbors are encouraged to look out for those who are unable to collect bottled water on their own. In response to Salem's drinking water crisis, the Oregon Health Authority on Tuesday announced that it would prepare state rules that require testing of cyanotoxins throughout the state for certain bodies of water at risk of toxic algae blooms. State health officials expect temporary rules to be set up by the end of June to get Oregon through this algae bloom season. Permanent rules will be finalized a bit later. Well, last time an advisory was in place, city councilors had taken issue with not being informed about it much sooner. They found out shortly before a May 29th council meeting after city staff had uh, had known there was a possible problem with the water since the 25th. Well, this uh, this time around, city councilors were looped in much sooner. City Councilor Sa- uh, Sally Cook rather said that she received notification Wednesday morning from Deputy uh, City Manager Casey Duncan. It's being handled much better this time around. So don't drink the water. They'll let you know when that changes. Well, the Spirit Mountain Casino Grand Floral Parade will take place this Saturday, June the 9th at 10 a.m. The Queen's coronation uh, precedes it immediately before the parade begins to exit the facility. It's presented by Unitas Community Credit Union this year. You can see the parade on Saturday at Veterans Memorial Coliseum at cost or on the streets of downtown Portland or live on Fox 12. And in fact, it's rather interesting because I drive home to and from work Uh, along that route and to see people begin to set up chairs. They're not permitted, from what I understand, to actually occupy those seats, but they can set up some of their stuff in hopes that it will still be there when they come for the parade on Saturday. And earlier today, well, the Junior Parade. Thousands of kids paraded down the street of Sandy uh, Boulevard. This year's parade featured sections to uh, showcase important elements of Portland life through a child's eyes, including empowering kids presented by Pacific Power, which highlighted the innovations, ideas and programs that inspire and engage Portland's youth to play happy in uh, Play Smart presented a first student kids wall um, that uh, Emphasize kids growing their brains amongst all the smiling and giggling kids is one very big green pickle. This year's Grand Marshal was the um, one and only Portland pickle. Um, again, the, the parade took place in the Hollywood district. You could have watched it and it might be rebroadcast on Fox 12 as well. Kind of a fun tradition here in the Portland area.
Well, taking a look at some of the developing stories for the day, eight states held primary elections uh, yesterday, including the very closely watched California, which may hold the key to Democrats' hopes of taking Congress in the November midterms and President Trump's chances to carry out his agenda. Fired former FBI Director Andrew McCabe seeks uh, immunity in exchange for his testimony about the agency's handling of the Hillary Clinton email probe during the 2016 presidential election. An anti-Trump FBI official, Peter Stroke, had a larger role in the Clinton email mail in Russia investigations than previously believed. China offers to buy $70 billion in U.S. goods if the Trump administration drops its plan to slap tariffs on Chinese imports. And um, on the Ingram angle, Jennifer Flowers, in an exclusive interview, accused the former President Bill Clinton of sexually harassing her before their alleged consensual 12-year relationship. And the fashion world is reeling from famed designer Kate Spade's apparent suicide as admirers and colleagues pay tribute to her legacy. Well, there are a few surprises in the pivotal primaries in California, the liberal stronghold where Democrats' hopes of retaking Congress in November and mounting a national challenge to the president's agenda hang in the balance. Uh, It's been projected that the uh, Democratic Lieutenant Governor Gavin Newsom will move on to the November election in the state's gubernatorial race, taking the top spot in the jungle primary, as they call it. Newsom will face Republican businessman John Cox, who surged late in the campaign with the support of the president to finish second. The result is uh, disappointing for Democratic Los Angeles Mayor Antonio uh, Villagarius, who uh, was widely considered the most vi- um, viable potential challenger to Newsom in November's general election in the extremely liberal states. You've got a Republican and a Democrat. But Cox's strong finish over uh, his opponent, a Democratic uh, institution in Southern California, was something of a win for President Trump, who enthusiastically backed Cox over another Republican contender. Uh, It's also uh, been projected that Senator Dianne Feinstein will place first in the state's jungle primary. And they call it that because you can vote for whomever, regardless of your party affiliation. Uh, She will uh, likely face um, ultra progressive state Senator Kevin DeLeon in November, who delivered remarks uh, early Wednesday, strongly suggesting that he will be the runner up. The state's key House races, though, are still uh, fairly close. Um, Some have been called. We won't do that today. But the winners and losers in California's most competitive races could take uh, days to sort out, given the state's unique election laws. Democrats need to flip 23 Republican controlled Uh, Seats to retake the House from the GOP in November. Out of California's 53 House seats, Republicans hold 14, and seven of those GOP-held districts backed Hillary Clinton in 2016. Well, seven other states held primaries yesterday, including New Jersey, Alabama, Mississippi, New Mexico, South Dakota, Iowa, and Montana. New Jersey Democratic Senator Bob Menendez, who avoided conviction in a corruption and bribery case last year, but was severely admonished by the the Senate Ethics Committee, survived a challenge from a fellow Democrat and won his party's nomination for another term as senator. Former pharmaceutical executive Bob Hugan won the Republican nomination to face Menendez in November. In Mississippi, Republican Senator Roger Weicker, he defeated Richard Boynton, a veteran and businessman. The Democratic Senate primary in Mississippi is headed for a runoff as neither candidate David Borea or Howard Sherman received more than 50 percent of the vote. Newt Gingrich observes that the Republican comeback is a real threat to the elite media's blue wave theory in this election Uh, demonstrated that, and nearly 120,000 voters reportedly were left off of Los Angeles voter rolls. Something curious there. Well, ousted FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe is seeking immunity in exchange for his testimony. That's related to a Justice Department watchdog's referral for possible prosecution ahead of a congressional hearing on the handling of the Clinton email probe during the presidential election of 2016. Michael Bromwich, an attorney representing McCabe, sent a letter to Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Chuck Grassley on Tuesday requesting that McCabe be granted immunity in exchange for testimony surrounding the inspector general's report that he leaked in information and lied about it to former FBI director James Comey. Greg Jarrett says possible immunity for McCabe puts James Comey on the hot seat. We'll see what happens next. And anti-Trump FBI officials, um, uh, the role of Mr. Stroke uh, apparently is under a microscope. And Peter Stroke, the FBI official who was pulled off special counsel Mueller's investigative team last year because of his uh, texts, played a more central role than previously known in both the Russia and Hillary Clinton email probes, according to a lawmaker. The lawmaker's assessment of Stroke's role in both investigations was based on the most recent records and testimony, including a closed door interview 
interview with FBI Espionage Chief Bill Prystrap. Prystap was interviewed Tuesday as part of an ongoing joint investigation by the House Judiciary and Oversight Committee. He said um, Stroke was supervisor and oversaw both the Russia and Clinton investigation, uh, investigations, plural rather. He was reassigned to the FBI's Human Resources Division following revelations that he was romantically involved with a colleague and exchanged politically charged texts. Uh, An FBI spokesperson um, last month said that Page had uh, resigned to uh, pressure um, uh, to pursue rather other opportunities. In addition uh, to uh, Mr. Stroke's work on the Mueller probe, he was the lead agent on the Clinton email case known inside the bureau by the code name Mid-Year Exam. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 36 minutes after 4 o'clock is our time. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Romina Baccia. She's a deputy director at the Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies and a Grover M. Herman Research Fellow. We're going to talk about... Uh, the fact that Washington has known about Social Security and Medicare insolvency issues for some time, and it's only gotten worse. We'll let you know what the latest report has to say. We'll also share a conversation I had with Tony Evans, his latest book, Your Comeback. Your past doesn't have to determine your future. Well, this Saturday, the whole family is invited to enjoy the World Forestry Center Discovery Museum and admission this Saturday is half off. You can see the Wildfires Destroy More Than Trees exhibit before it's gone. Uh, They're also featuring information about last year's wildfires in Oregon and how it's impacted our area. You'll learn about fire-resistant plants in a live plant display and compare a 1930s fire truck and a modern fire engine. You can snap a selfie, selfie. This is different than a shelfie, I suppose. A selfie with Smokey Bear. And notice there's no the in there. It's not Smokey the Bear. Smokey Bear. Uh, And there will be fun activities for kids and a prize wheel. That's this Saturday from 10 to 5 at the World Forestry Center Discovery Museum in Washington Park. For more information, you can go to worldforestry.org. Sponsored by Keep Oregon Green and the Oregon Department of Forestry. By the way, we are giving away... Family four-packs of tickets for admissions uh, to the Forestry Center. They can be used this Saturday, but they can be used beyond it as well. And we want to give that away to caller number 4, 503-786-9390, 503-786-9390. Again, a family pass for World Forestry Center Discovery Museum. Good for up to four admissions. So if you have a family of four, you're in. If you go this Saturday and you have more than four the um, extras are half off, so make um, make note of that. 503-786-9390. By the way, we'll be doing the same thing on Thursday and Friday. So if you're looking for something fun to do during this Rose Festival season, go to the parade, go to the Forestry Center, have yourself a great time. Well, President Donald Trump's former campaign manager, Paul Manafort, who's been indicted by U.S. Special Counsel Robert Mueller, attempted to tamper with potential witnesses. That's at least what Mueller said in a court filing earlier this week. Mueller, of course, is investigating possible collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia, asking the judge overseeing the case in U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia to revoke or revise an order that released Manafort ahead of his trial on something like bail. Manafort was released to home confinement after his arraignment in October. Mueller has indicted Manafort in federal courts in Virginia and in Washington, D.C., with an array of allegations from money laundering, failing to register as a foreign agent, to bank fraud and tax fraud, Manafort has pled not guilty. Uh, FBI agent, uh, Special Agent Brock Dahman, is in a declaration filed uh, with Mueller's motion, said Manafort had attempted to call, text, or send encrypted messages in February to two people from the Habsburg Group, a firm he worked with to promote the interests of Ukraine. Well, the FBI has documents and statements from the two people, as well as telephone records and documents recovered uh, through a search of Manafort's iCloud account, showing that Trump's former campaign manager attempted communication while he was out on bail. Well, the communications were an effort to influence their testimony and to otherwise consider evidence, Dahman wrote. The investigation into this matter is ongoing. Well, Manafort is the most senior member of the Trump campaign to be indicted, though the charges don't relate to the campaign at all. Mueller uh, urged Judge Amy Berman Jackson to promptly schedule a hearing on the uh, 
on the uh, on whether rather to change Manafort's conditions of release, which could result in his going to jail. His uh, trial in Washington is uh, set to begin on the 17th of September, and I believe a trial date has been set uh, for that hearing to determine the disposition of his Uh, release now as well. Meanwhile, the Justice Department's internal watchdog has found that the fired FBI director, James Comey, flouted his supervisors or his superiors during his time as FBI chief. That's according to initial information on that report. Now, there's lots of reflection on what it may or may not say, but this is an outline apparently of the not yet released report from the inspector general describing Comey as insubordinate. That's according to ABC News. Well, the inspector general opened an investigation last year over concerns that Department of or uh, FBI policies or procedures were not followed in connection with or in actions leading up to or related to the FBI director's public announcements on the 5th of July 2016 that no charges would be filed against Hillary Clinton in connection with her use of a private email server as secretary of state. Well, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein later recommended that Comey be fired, criticizing both his July press conference and his public letter to Congress saying that the FBI had reopened the Clinton probe just days before the election in 2016. The report calls out to Comey for ignoring at least one senior Justice Department official's objections to that letter, which made waves across Across the country just days before voters cast their ballots for or against Clinton. The official was concerned about revealing information related to an ongoing investigation. Comey, meanwhile, has claimed that he would not have sent the letter had he been uh, told not to by the attorney general. Elsewhere in the report, former attorney general Loretta Lynch she was the attorney general at that time, is said to be criticized for her Justice Department's handling of the Clinton investigation, including her controversial meeting in 2016 with Bill Clinton, which sparked concern that the former president was trying to influence the investigation. Former FBI Director uh, Andrew McCabe's investigation is also scrutinized. McCabe was fired in March after a separate uh, inspector general report concluded he had lied to FBI investigators. I long for the day when these are no longer issues about which... There are headlines, reports, or, uh, or conclusions yet to be drawn. Well, the curious case of Imran Awan, which sounds like an uh, international spy thriller, is entering its third act. Awan was a congressional IT aide to Representative Debbie Wasserman Schultz, and he was finally fired just after he was arrested trying to fly to Pakistan last summer. Awan and his wife... Uh, They were charged last summer with bank fraud. They now appear poised to strike a plea deal with the Department of Justice. A plea agreement hearing is set for the 3rd of July before U.S. District Judge Tanya Chutkan in Washington, D.C. As uh, we dig deeper into this case, uh, Spies in Congress author says sources have made it clear that the bank fraud charges in this case, though very real, are just a way to hold the defendants. Alleged theft of congressional equipment, massive data breaches of Congress members' emails, likely espionage, rather, and more are all wrapped up in the case that involves data from 40 or more Democratic members of Congress. Sources say the FBI's Joint Terrorism Task Force has been looking into the matter since well before Awan and his crew of Pakistani congressional IT aides were booted off the House computer network in February of 2017. Rather, And sources also say that investigation... Uh, investigators, rather, were particularly interested in whether anyone else in the congressional offices uh, that all of these uh, IT aides worked for was involved in alleged improper activity. Now, this might include Representative Wasserman Schultz, uh, who was the Democratic National Committee chair when she employed Awan. It might also include former Representative Xavier Bacara, who employed Awan when Bacara was uh, chairman of the um, House Democratic Caucus. He's now California Attorney General. The House Office of Inspector General tracked the Awan's network usage and found that a massive amount of data was flowing from the congressional networks. Representative Scott Perry, a Republican out of Pennsylvania, uh, says over 5,700 logins by the five Awan associates were discovered on a single server within the House, the server of the Democratic Caucus chairman, then Representative Xavier Becerra, or Becerra of California. Up to 40 or more members of Congress had all of their data moved out uh, of their office servers and onto the Becerra server without their knowledge or consent. Uh, Becerra left Congress in January of last year before he left. Capitol Police wanted a copy of the caucus server's content. So that is uh, about to the, the third stage, if you will, is underway, and that's about to kind of blow wide open. 
Meanwhile, a former Navy sailor who is one of five people to receive a pardon from President Donald Trump is planning to file a lawsuit against the Obama administration officials, alleging that he was subject to unequal protection of the law. Specifically, uh, uh, Christian Saucier, who served a year in uh, prison uh, for taking photos of classified sections of the submarine on which he worked, argues that the same officials who meted out punishment to him for his actions chose to be lenient with Hillary Clinton in her use of a private email server and handling of classified information. His lawyer, Ronald Daigle, uh, said on Monday that the lawsuit, which he expects to uh, file soon in Manhattan, will name the U.S. Department of Justice, former FBI Director James Comey, former President Barack Obama as defendants, among others. Chances of this succeeding? Well, pretty slim to none. By the way, the president also uh, commuted the life sentence of Alice Marie Johnson earlier today after a high-profile campaign for clemency by reality television star Kim Kardashian West. Johnson is 63. She was serving a life sentence without the possibility of parole after being convicted of a first-time nonviolent drug offense, which was pretty extensive if you read her uh, background. But nonetheless, she has been given... um, Clemency, which doesn't mean her record is expunged, but she will be released. 46 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 51 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Donald Trump's attorney, Rudy Giuliani, said today that Kim Jong-un had in quotes, begged the White House to reschedule the previously planned June 12th summit meeting between Kim and Trump after the president canceled the event in response to North Korea's hostile rhetoric. Now, I don't know about you, but it seems to me that's something you probably would say in private, but probably wouldn't say it to the press where it could be read by parties concerned. They said they were going to go nuclear war with us. They were going to defeat us in a nuclear war, Giuliani reported. Uh, Speaking of an investment conference in Israel, likely referring to the May 25th statement issued by the North Korean foreign minister, indicating that Krim was still prepared to use his nuclear arsenal if circumstances required. We said we're not going to have a summit under those circumstances. Well, Kim Jong-un got back on his hands and knees and begged for it, which is exactly the position you want him to be in, Giuliani said of Kim's reaction to the cancellation. Well, the Trump administration subsequently announced that the summit would, in fact, take place as previously scheduled. Giuliani suggested to his Israeli audience that the Trump administration would be wise to employ a similar strategy in negotiating with Palestine. That's what needs to happen with the Palestinian Authority. They have to be seeking peace. You've got to uh, change the dynamic and put the pressure on them, he said. Well, Palestinian officials have refused to meet with Trump since he officially relocated the U.S. Embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem in what was formerly a consulate um, office. I'm not sure it's really helpful, though, in moving toward a summit in which you're going to discuss serious things. I noted there was a um, a piece, let me see if I can find it really quickly, um, on the Fox News page that indicated that Kim Jong-un is terrified that he's going to be assassinated while he's at this summit with um, the president in Singapore, and with good reason. I mean, one can... Uh, only imagine uh, the fear that he has given what he has done to his own people and those closest to him. The report says that he um, uh, fears an attempt on his life at the historic Singapore summit that will bring the hermit kingdom leader to the furthest he's ever been from his country since coming to power. Officials believe that he's worried about security and the possibility of an assassination attempt at the high stakes summit where he'll meet President Trump for the first time after months of back and forth negotiations and other things. In 2017, North Korea accused the U.S. U.S. and South Korean intelligence services of hatching a, uh, an assassination plot against him with biochemical substances. Of course, he's used substances to kill family members. Uh, according to North Korea's state-run Korean Central News Agency, a hideous terrorist group directed by CIA and South Korean spies ideologically corrupted a North Korean dissident identified as Kim and paid the man some $20,000 to carry out that attack. North Korea's Ministry of State Security called the supposed plot a last-ditch effort that had gone beyond the limits. Well, last month, as uh, we mentioned, the president had canceled the summit following uh, threatening language from Kim. Uh, he came back, uh, sent word through a, uh, an emissary, if you will, and the meeting is back on. But one can only imagine how terrifying it must be for him, the prospect of being away from the, the uh, tenuous security that he holds in his hermit kingdom, where few can... Uh, can reach him who might want to end his uh, end his life.
Well, the Obama administration secretly sought to give Iran access, albeit briefly, to the U.S. financial system by sidestepping sanctions kept in place after the 2015 nuclear deal, despite repeatedly telling Congress and the public it had no plans to do so. An investigation by Senate Republicans released today sheds light on that delicate balance the administration sought to strike after the deal as it worked to ensure Iran received its promised benefits without playing into the hands of the deal's opponents, which were legion. Amid a tense political climate, Iran hawks in the U.S., Israel and elsewhere argue that the United States was giving far too much to Tehran and that the windfall would be used to fund extremism and other troubling Iranian activity, which, of course, it was. The report by the Senate Permanent subcommittee on investigations revealed that under President Barack Obama, the Treasury Department issued a license in February of 2016, never previously disclosed, that would have allowed Iran to convert $5.7 billion it held at a bank in Oman uh, from Omani reals into euros by exchanging them first into U.S. dollars. If the Omani bank had allowed the exchange without such a license, it would have violated sanctions that bar Iran from transactions that touch the U.S. financial system. Well, the effort was unsuccessful because American banks, themselves afraid of running afoul of U.S. sanctions, declined to participate. Well, the Obama administration approached two U.S. banks to facilitate the conversion, the report said, but both refused, citing the reputational risk of doing business with or for Iran. The Obama administration misled the American people and Congress because they were desperate to get a deal with Iran. Senator Rob Portman, Republican out of Ohio, uh, said uh, to the subcommittee's chairman, or rather he is the subcommittee's chairman speaking to the committee, issuing the license was not illegal. Still, it went above and beyond what the administration was required to do under the terms of the nuclear agreement. Under that deal, the U.S. and world powers gave Iran billions of dollars in sanctions relief in exchange for curbing its nuclear program. Last month, President Trump declared the U.S. was pulling out of what he described as a disastrous deal that had not been supported by Congress, or by the Senate, rather. The license issued uh, to Bank Muscat stood in stark contrast to repeated public statements from the Obama White House, the Treasury, and State Departments, all of which denied that the administration was contemplating allowing Iran access to U.S. financial systems. Well, shortly after the nuclear deal was sealed in 2015, July, then-Treasury Secretary Jack Lew testified that even with the sanctions relief, Iran will continue to be denied access to the world's largest financial and commercial market. A month later, one of Lew's top deputies, and Andrew Zubin, uh, testified that despite the nuclear deal, Iran will be denied access to the world's most important market and unable to deal in the world's most important currency. All the while, they were attempting to do just that. And if it had not been for U.S. banks too afraid to move forward, even uh, with the uh, the administration urging them to do so, uh, it probably would have happened. Well, later in the program, in fact, at the five o'clock hour, we're going to talk with Romina Baccia. We're going to talk about Social Security, which will spend more than it collects this year. The program's trustees announced in their report marking the first time in more than 35 years that it will be run uh, run an annual deficit, rather, as it slides toward insolvency by 2034. We'll talk with Romina Baccia about that and what that means for you and your future retirement when we return. News and traffic right next, right up, coming up. We're going to take a break. We'll be back. I'm 62. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, yesterday, the Social Security and Medicare trustees issued their annual reports. They detailed the financial state of America's two largest entitlement programs, Social Security and Medicare. Well, the reports echo past conclusions. Social Security and Medicare are still going bankrupt. And its current pace, Medicare is going to go bankrupt in 2026, and the Social Security Trust Fund for Old Age Benefits and Disability Benefits will go bankrupt in 2034. Now, Washington has known for decades about Social Security and Medicare insolvency issues. And yet this report echoes what previous reports have said. The question is, what's going to be done about it? Well, joining us to talk about the issue is Romina Baccia. She is Deputy Director at the Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies and a Grover M. Herman Research Fellow. Thank you so much for joining us. With Social Security, we actually got some frightening news this year and this is that for the first time uh, since 1982, the trust fund will now be drained 
meaning the IOUs that are with the Social Security Administration, are now being traded in for public debt or cash in order to pay benefits. So that means that the clock is ticking, and uh, under current projections, the insolvency will be in 2034. That's for Social Security. Medicare insolvency for the hospital insurance trust fund portion will be coming much sooner, as soon as 2026. Uh, again, this it shouldn't be altogether surprising because if we've been paying attention, we know that politicians have been unwilling to address this uh, approaching storm. Um, and yet here we stand. How likely is it from your perspective that this time around politicians informing the public are going to actually do something to make these programs solvent moving forward? Oh, if you could bet on one thing and make a lot of money this year is that this year, Nothing is going to happen. Neither Congress nor the administration are going to do anything to resolve these issues. The question is, how much longer will they wait? Because one thing that we do know is that the longer they wait, the more costly the policy fixes required to ultimately resolve the issue, whether that be tax increases or spending cuts. For Social Security, if they wait until 2034, the policy fixes required will be 40% larger than what would be required if we started today. Now, here are a couple of figures from American Action Forum. They say that payroll taxes would have to increase more than 13% to pay for Medicare Part A in 2017. And over the next 75 years, Social Security will owe over $13 trillion more than it's projected to take in. Now, you have a shrinking workforce. You have a growing body of people who are eligible for these benefits. This sounds like worse than a train wreck. This is a disaster. It's an absolute disaster, and lawmakers are looking the other way, and the administration hasn't been much better on the issue. Unfortunately, what I fear will happen is if we don't resolve the issue in a common-sense way with benefit reforms now, sooner rather than later, we are looking at a massive tax increase in the not-too-distant future because that will be the easiest way to adjust these programs down the road, it's much easier to collect taxes right away than is to make gradual policy reforms, although that route, gradually increasing the retirement age, more properly targeting benefits to those populations that need them most, and using more market factors to help drive down health care costs while preserving quality of care and Medicare, those are the kinds of changes that would make these programs work better for their beneficiaries, and also for taxpayers. But unfortunately, there doesn't seem to be much appetite in Washington to uh, make those kinds of reforms. One of the reasons there doesn't seem to be much appetite is every time any suggestion is made that adjustments are necessary to either Social Security or Medicare, uh, organizations like the AARP and others throw their heads back and howl uh, that adjustments um, are, are unfair. And I understand when one approaches retirement age, you have certain expectations. But the American American people need to know the state of the finances of Social Security and Medicare. Do you think that will help them better understand and then ultimately support the kinds of changes that are going to be necessary for these programs to continue? I am hopeful that that is the case. I've unfortunately noticed that many people, including Americans all across the country, like to stick their hands in the sand on this issue as well, because all their lives, They have been paying these taxes and they were promised benefits at the other end. And now they're facing the harsh reality that those funds were never saved, but it's actually their children and grandchildren that are now paying for their benefits. And those benefits are unfunded, so those burdens could rise very rapidly. And that is a very harsh truth to face because people have worked hard and they've paid a lot of taxes. And yet now those promises that have been made cannot be kept in the form in which they were originally made. And that is too unfortunate because that is the reality of politics, which is Mm -hmm. why the ultimate solution needs to put Americans off their health care decisions and off their retirement security. We need more private sector options. We need more defined contribution accounts in this system, the same way that the private sector has moved towards defined contribution, we need to do something like that with the federal government programs so Americans can own and control their own retirement. What we need are honest politicians to make the points that you've just made. We need to have American people who are willing to 
uh, face the truth and uh, consider that young people may not be willing to fund the excessive programs, uh, the fund with uh, excessive contributions, the programs that are uh, supporting their parents and grandparents. What do you um, anticipate will happen in the short term, in the near term, as we anticipate what this report tells us is inevitable unless changes are made? What's going to happen is that interest costs are going to rise. The federal budget is going to grow in order to cover the rising cost of interest as our national debt continues to spiral out of control. And until the pain of that high interest is large enough so that politicians will pay attention because it squeezes their abilities to pay for their pet projects and to hand out money to their cronies, that's when I think we will see more motion in order to rein in this these programs that are driving the growth in our debt and spending. Unfortunately, at that point, I I fear it might be too late for some of the most gradual and common-sense reforms, and more drastic changes might be necessary, and higher taxes, which could mean a slower economy and less opportunity for younger generations. But that's what happens if we don't act soon. Yeah. Well, this is a good time to talk to uh, men and women who are seeking our support through these midterm elections that are uh, are coming up. Ask them about Social Security and Medicare. Ask them to be honest about the future and what they plan to do uh, to avoid the disaster that is looming. Romina, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it very much. Again, Romina Baccia is uh, Deputy Director at the Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies and a Grover M. Herman Research Fellow. Up next, we're going to hear from Tony Evans, his latest book, Your Comeback, Your Past Doesn't Have to Determine Your Future. Now, think about that for a moment, that the things that have happened in the past don't necessarily determine what your future looks like. So we'll talk with Tony Evans about that coming up right here on The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up on the program tomorrow, we're going to talk with Erica Young Wrights, author of After College Navigating Transitions, Relationships, and Faith. This is After College. So I'm looking forward to talking. Uh, with her about that. It's a season that we don't often spend much time reflecting on unless, of course, we find ourselves in that position at a at a given time. Well, for most people in the West, the decision to adopt a new faith is a serious one made after thorough investigation of the truth claims of various religions. Well, that weighty decision is also a free decision. Yet for many people around the world, that basic freedom is lacking. Too often, governments impose obstacles to block citizens from converting to another religion. At a recent policy event on Capitol Hill, a um, a man who serves as a legal consultant to ADF International shared about the obstacles faced by religious minorities in his native India. His family converted to Christianity from Hinduism. That kind of decision would become illegal if the Hindu nationalist BJP party has its way. Well, eight states in India already have anti-conversion laws in effect, including two states that adopted them in the past year. Laughably called Freedom of Religion Acts, these laws, they try to prevent Hindus from converting to Christianity or Islam. They purport to prohibit conversions that are based on force, fraud, or inducement. But these terms are pretty vague. The laws essentially ban conversion whenever local authorities object. And that's generally every time. Well, some laws require potential converts to notify local government officials. Others mandate advance permission which often is not granted. Well, this violates a fundamental principle of international human rights, that a person can believe whatever he or she chooses to believe, and that no one can force him or her to adopt or to renounce a particular belief. Well, members of the lowest caste to convert away from Hinduism lose certain government benefits, an obvious attempt to keep them in their place. Conversely, and unsurprisingly, if somebody wants to convert to Hinduism, the majority religion, there are no hurdles. Mass Hindu conversion ceremonies take place with no consequences, even though some participants claim they're forced to take part. While recent arrests include 32 Catholic seminarians singing Christmas carols, chaperones for a Christian summer camp, and a Christian handing out pamphlets. Extremists attack Christians as they worship in their churches and homes under the pretense of preventing fraudulent conversions. Lawyers like um, this gentleman, uh, Mr. Beskarin, 
represent Christians who have been attacked, but it can take years for victims to receive reparations if they receive any at all. Well, as religious nationalism grows in the region, other countries have passed similar laws. In August of 2017, Nepal criminalized religious conversions, bolstering a pre-existing constitutional provision. Myanmar, formerly Burma, they passed an anti-conversion law in 2015 as part of a package of laws targeting minorities, especially the Muslim Rohingya. Bhutan's penal code, uh, that's banned conversions since 2011. Nepal is a majority Hindu country. Myanmar a Bhut- uh, and Bhutan, rather, are Buddhist. Well, the United Nations has failed to protect religious minorities in these countries, despite its creation as the primary uh, champion of international human rights. Major human rights violators continue to be allowed to, on the UN's Human Rights Council, including Afghanistan, China, Cuba, Egypt, Pakistan, and Venezuela. India was on the council until last year. Well, the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights that bills itself as the center of UN's human rights efforts is too busy busy with its campaign on so-called sexual and reproductive rights to focus on religious freedom. A few countries have condemned anti-conversion laws through the Universal Periodic Review, and that's a mechanism by which member states can make recommendations to other member states. But countries under review simply note, reject in the... Um, UN parlance, the recommendations they do not like, and that's pretty much it. Well, to affect change, states have to demand accountability from the UN entities charged with protecting and promoting human rights, including threatening to withhold funds from the UN until it prioritizes religious freedom and according, uh, accordingly condemns anti-conversion laws. Otherwise, the UN will continue to fail religious minorities in India, in Nepal, in Myanmar, and in Bhutan, who will have no real freedom to believe what they choose to believe. As we know, there are many believers who choose to follow Christ regardless of the cost. We refer to them as the persecuted church, persecuted believers. We are as much family to them as we are to one another living in the same country in the same community. And we would do well to remember them in prayer and to consider whether or not we are living a Christian life that is so evident um, that We, if we were in similar circumstances, would be identified as followers of Christ. It is a challenge to us as we remember them in prayer. Once again, tomorrow on the program, we're looking forward to a conversation uh, uh, on the book After College with Erica Young writes the book's uh, subtitle Navigating Transitions, Relationships and Faith. Again, this period that uh, we don't talk a lot about, but it can be a challenging um, transition as challenging as beginning college and coming into a whole new community without uh, one's parents. So that's uh, what we're looking forward to that conversation on the program tomorrow. I want to thank James Blind for engineering and producing today's program. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.